His desire has always been to tabernacle among us. From leading us out of Egypt through the Exodus by his spirit, with his cloud by day and fire by night, covering us and protecting us in that place. To coming in the flesh and pitching his tent among us in the form of Yeshua, Jesus. And walking a certain way and, and saying, look at how I walk. I want you to walk the way I walk. Follow my example. Whoever says that he abides in me ought to walk in the same way in which I walk. And then what he did was he ascended. But he sent a Holy Spirit. He sent a Ruach HaKodesh thereafter. Who then came to fill us. Come and enter our tabernacles, our temples, our sukkahs. And then at the end of the age... We see him doing something new. We see a new thing in that he comes and he makes a promise. He says, one day, one day very soon, I'm going to come and I'm going to make a new heaven and earth. I'm going to take you from this place, this earth you know. I'm going to let you dwell in the clouds for a little while. I'm going to meet you there. And all will be made new. And I will in that day, tabernacle with you face to face as I did in the garden. We have found ourselves at the festival of tabernacles or the feast of Sukkot. And this festival celebrates this. It celebrates God's pursuit of us, of how he continually has been throughout the ages from the garden, been desiring to one simple thing, and that's to tabernacle among us, to draw near to us over and over and over again. And I don't know if you realize, but the examples I just gave of how he's been pursuing us throughout the ages, there's a pattern. You see, the father, he, he started with us in Egypt where we see him, you know, in the heavens and we're on earth and he's covering us and he's guiding us and he's doing all these amazing things for us. But then the next time he comes to tabernacle with us, the next stage, if you will, is when he comes and he comes in the flesh and meets us there on earth, here in the flesh. And thereafter he sends a spirit and thereafter he comes and he calls us up in the clouds and, and in the end of the day he meets us face to face. You see how the intimacy increases. You see, there is a drawing near. First, we were far off, like at Mount Sinai. He was up there. We were down at the, at the base of the mountain. Moses was up there, and he's he and with God. And but but the but we as people were so far away from him. We were so our sin is in the way, and we can't get to him in that way. We can't get to see him face to face in that way, because it's just too bright but see the father comes and he then comes in the flesh and he meets us where we are and he fills us then with his spirit to equip us to walk in a way that will allow us to draw near to him a a way that is holy and then what he did was he then at the end he comes and he meets us face to face we will dwell with him for eternity on the eighth day 
You see, this feast celebrates this nearness, this increase of intimacy throughout the ages. The Festival of Tabernacles is a feast of seven. And you'll see why it is incredibly significant. Why we have, it's the seventh, seventh feast, the seventh feast of God. It's on the seventh month, the Hebrew month on the Hebrew calendar, on God's calendar. And it's a seven day feast. It's a feast that is, is last seven days long. It is actually described in the scriptures by God and, and as the most joyous feast of the year where God says that I want you to celebrate and be joyous. It's actually a commandment. How incredible an instruction from God where he says you need to be joyful in this season. These seven days be as joyful as you've ever been. Why? You see, in the four feasts of God, we have the Feast of Trumpets, which is a feast of which falls on the first day of the month on Tishrei 1. And that feast is it represents the blowing of trumpets read about in Revelation represents this. This it's a feast of a joyful feast because he's coming back. But it's also a feast of sadness and gloom because he is coming back and everyone who's not ready will not be ready and suffer for it. After that, we have the Day of Atonement that falls on the 10th day of the month. And that day, we see that it's also a day of gloomy. It's actually a day that God commands us to fast and afflict our being. In other words, because Day of Atonement represents the judgment of God, the great judgment where everyone will be judged for everything they ever thought or done. And then thereafter, on the timeline, we have the marriage supper of the Lamb, the feast, the wedding feast, where God will meet his bride, like I've mentioned, gather them together, gather his bride together and have the wedding feast. And see, that is what this feast of Sukkot Tabernacles is. It's about a wedding. And today it is a wedding rehearsal for that wedding. And it's interesting because this feast, like I said, it's the seven day feast. But God says something really interesting when he commands us to keep it. He says, I want you to have this feast, right? But I want you to rest on the first and on the eighth day. But it's interesting because when we read, he just said it's a seven day feast. But then he says, no, but I want you to rest on the first and on the eighth day. Why, Why is there eighth day suddenly? You see, the number seven is the number of completion and rest. So we rest, the Sabbath is, falls on the seventh day. And similarly, this feast is the culmination of all the feasts. It brings everything, all the other feasts of God together. It brings all every age of God together as well. From Adam and Eve till the day we meet with him face to face in the clouds. We read in scripture about how we will have the six days on earth. We will have these six thousand years, if you will. And then we have the millennial reign with Christ, the seventh day where it is a rest. We rest with him. It's a millennial reign with him. And then after that, we have the eighth day, the eight thousandth year. Eight is the number of new beginnings. And that is where we will see the new heaven and the new earth. All things will become new, etc. Restoration will come. And so that is what this festival of Sukkot celebrates. It celebrates that great eighth day because see, this feast is known as the great feast. And that eighth day is the greatest day because that's 
when everything we have been involved in points to. And then he commands us to rest on the first and on the eighth day. And the reason for this is when we look at the timeline on the first day, the first uh, when when we that is, it's when the earth was created. It was when we were here. Adam and Eve was made and it was when they dwelt with God face to face. God was in that garden with them. He saw them there. They knew him face to face. And God calls us to now rest on that 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 first day of the feast and then on the eighth day, he wants us to rest too. And that eighth day, like I mentioned, is that day when all things will be made new. All this, all things here will pass away, but we will again meet with him face to face. You see, it's all about intimacy. It's all about that face to face relationship with our father. That's all what this is about. And it celebrates that. And you see, there's so many people that say, oh, P, why do you celebrate this feast of God? Oh, it's, it's, it's not for us today. I say, you don't understand. It's not been fulfilled yet. You don't understand. It's not Jewish. God says, it's my feast. He said, this, these are my feasts. And you see, it's all about drawing closer to him. It's all about being obedient to him. It's, he says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And oh, by the way, Jesus kept this feast too. And in the millennial reign of Christ, we will keep this feast too. But where did this all begin? You see, when we look at the scriptures, the first time that Sukkot is mentioned, it's in an interesting part of scripture. It's in the story of Jacob and Esau, and it, and it seems to not really make sense because the scripture just casually mentions of how we have the, the story of Jacob and Esau, and then we have him suddenly just mention, oh, and by the way, Jacob went to pitch his tents and, to, and, and take his livestock to this place called Sukkot because he, he, he built dwell, temporary dwellings over his livestock. And it's such a peculiar point in scripture to introduce such a thing. But I want to show you that this story is one of the most incredible stories that will give us the most incredible amount of revelation about this feast and teach us about God's plan with this and with his people. In Genesis 33, verse 17, we read, And Jacob set out to Sukkot and built himself a house and made booths for his livestock. That is why the name of the place is called Sukkot. And so at this point on the scriptural timeline, we have the story where Jacob, if you remember correctly, Jacob stole Esau's birthright. And there was this dispute between the brothers. There was this, this anger between them, if you will, or at least Jacob thought that it, or he assumed that Esau was still angry with him because of what happened these many years ago. And so with that assumption, he hears that Esau is, is on his way and, he, and Jacob is deeply struck with a fear because he fears that his brother is going to come and destroy him for what he has done to him. And so Jacob, he hears about Esau and his 400 men and the following happens. We see and Jacob lifted his eyes and looked and saw Esau coming and with him 400 men. And he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants. And he put the female servants and their children in front and Leah and, the, and their, her children behind. And Rachel and Joseph lost. And he himself passed over before them and bowed himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. And Esau ran to meet him and embraced him 
and fell on his neck and kissed him. And they wept. And this moment in the scriptures is incredibly amazing because we have Jacob. He's having this expectation that Esau is going to kill him or or attack him. And he's coming with this army of 400 men and his children and everything. His family is here and all of them are going to pass away because of what he did all this time ago. But then Esau comes and he he gives him a hug and he and they weep together and the forgiveness is there. You see, and, and right before that, Jacob actually went and he said, and it's scripture said that he went to bow before him seven times. Isn't this familiar? You see, the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Sukkot, I said it's a seven day feast. So we have Jacob coming and, and bowing down before him seven times. And just as he finishes with his seventh bow, Esau comes and grabs him and gives him a hug. There's something going on here. I'd like you to see. You see, this all is just a picture of us and God. You see, like just like Jacob sinned against Esau. And he had this this assumption that Esau is, is really angry at him and is going to to totally push him aside and, and destroy him. It's similar with us and God often where we know we have sinned against God. We have fallen short of his glory. But. We go and we we see it's this time of Sukkot. It's this time you see, because this story played off in the feast around the feast of between the feast of trumpets and the day of atonement and the feast of Sukkot. This was all taking place in the fall feast season. And see, Jacob was in this repentant heart state where he's coming and he's bowing down seven times, representing the seven days, falling down, repenting. Just like we, we come and we repent before God. We say, Lord, we're preparing. We want to be ready for you. We want to be like the virgins who were ready. And we go and we and, and like he and then God comes. And he on that last day, right at the end of that seventh day, right at the very end. And and until that very end, we're really not sure how it's going to be to meet him. So you see, because it's like when a bride meets, see, meets her bridegroom for the first time ever. You know, it's like it's like the story of Rachel and Isaac when Rachel came on the camel's back and she already agreed to marry Isaac before even seeing him. And Isaac has never seen her. It's this total mystery at that point. And, you know, I want to submit to you and Rachel when riding on that camel and she saw Isaac you know, just up till the moment right before she first saw him. She was unsure. She was like, did I make the right decision? Is this is this the man for me? Is this man going to be pleased in who I am and what I look like and how I behave? You see, that is the, exactly the thing between Jacob and Esau and Jacob. But, but Esau, very much like God, when we come to him in a heart of repentance and say, Father, make us pure. Forgive us where we have sinned against you. He comes and he hugs us. And we weep 
with him. You see, it's the picture when he says in Revelation, I will wipe away your tears. It's the same thing. So what he's talking about here. When Israel was celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles as well, they celebrated as an agricultural festival. In other words, they celebrated it. Part of the celebration was thanking God for the rains that will come in the next year. Because see, this is we're sitting at the, the, at the, at the new year now that's coming up. And, and it's this, this thank you, God, for the rains that you will send. And see, it's the same thing. It's this new rains, the new restoration, the new making all things new. That is what it's all pointing to, that Israel was also celebrating with this feast. And what we see next is Esau coming and and seeing all these gifts, he, he sees all the things that Jacob brought him. And, and he's like, well, what are all these gifts, brother? Why did you give me these gifts? I don't, I don't need them. And Jacob was like, no, brother, please, you need to accept them because these are my gifts. This is my sacrifice to you for what I did to you. This is part of my repentance. This is part of my demonstration of love to you. Please accept them, Esau. And Esau says, oh, I will accept them in that case. And, it's, and, it's, and, he, and we read here, he says, Esau said, what do you mean by all this company which I made? And he said, to find favor in the eyes of my master. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Let what you have remain yours. And Jacob said, no, please, if I have now find favor in your eyes, let, then receive my present from my hand, because I have seen your face like seeing the face of God. And you were pleased with me. You see, even Jacob here is here saying, he's giving us a hint as this whole picture, this whole thing happening between him and his brother is a picture of God and us. He says it's like seeing the face of God to see my brother because it's the same way of how we encounter God in that way where we see God comes and he and and we in this time he actually told us God said in Leviticus around the celebrating of the Feast of Tabernacles, he says, that we are to bring a gift. We are to bring an offering and to break a sacrifice on our part to demonstrate our love to him. And he, and he says here in Leviticus 23 verse 38, besides the Sabbaths of Yahweh and besides your gifts and besides your vows, besides the voluntary offerings, which you give Yahweh. And so see, in this season, I encourage you to go and say, Father, what is the gift that I can give you? Father, where can what what volunteer, what offering, what sacrifice can I make you? Yes, we don't have a temple. The temple doesn't stand today, but that then doesn't stop us from being able to make a sacrifice or unto God, giving where he leads you to give wherever that is. And so this is really a season of doing that. Because we can't afford to come to the Father empty handed. But then this begs the question, you know, what is the best gift we can give? What is like like Jacob giving Esau these gifts of repentance? What is the gift? What is the biggest gift we can give God? I want to submit to you that when a bride and comes to her bridegroom, you know, the bridegroom is not going to be so, so care too much about the about a material gift or, you know, this or that. What he is going to want in his bride is a bride who has set herself apart for him, a bride who has kept herself pure, her garments pure, a bride who has 
who, who acts in a way that she ought to act, who is equally yoked with him. A bride who that is the greatest gift that a bride can give her husband or a husband can give his wife for that matter is is that pursuit of God that she has. You know, by the time that they marry, she's got this incredible pursuit of God that that will only edify the marriage and, and allow them to pursue God better and the kingdom of God. And see, it's no different from how God desires us as a bride. He, he desires, yes, bringing him gifts and sacrifices and offerings and making a sacrifice on our part is part of it. You know, when uh, when a wife does one day bring a, a, a give, give her husband a gift, it's a great it's a great thing and it would be appreciated. Of course, it's a demonstration of love. But what God really wants is our life. What he really wants is everything he desires of us to come and and lay everything down for him. You see, keep ourselves pure and holy and set apart for him, undefiled and equally yoked with our bridegroom. You see, in that place, that is what pleases him above everything else. And that is the gift that I, I encourage you. That's the gift that he desires from you today is yes, we can go and we can make, give him this gift and that gift and let, let him lead us in that. But there's no use in doing that if we're not sold out, if our hearts aren't absolutely submitted unto him, if we aren't at peace with all men. You see, because what, what use is it even to also do all these things, but they not not love our neighbor. It's like when Yeshua said in Matthew, he said, so if you're offering your gift at the altar and there, remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. You see, Yeshua encouraged us there in the same thing. It's just like exactly what Jacob did with Esau. You know, it's in this time of Sukkot. It's time where the voluntary offerings are being made. But he and his brother was not set straight yet. And so he went to reconcile that because even he, he cannot reconcile himself with God and be right with God if he's not right with his brother. You see, God calls us to be a living sacrifice. And if we, when we look, go back in history for a moment, and I would like to show you the way that these sacrifices were actually made. When we look at the historical writings, we actually see the, look, see the water libation ceremony took place in this age, in this time of the year. And the water libation ceremony is, uh, is, is, was the joyous, most joyous feast of the year, like it was on Sukkot. And at this feast, sacrifices were done in a way that they weren't done in any other time of the year. You see, the blood of the altar, the blood was taken and with water as well. And this, there was a jar of water, there was a the jar of blood. And what they would do is they would pour the water and the blood down these groves so that they would, and it would hit the altar at the exact same time. The water represented this substance which we drink, which we, we can't explain its taste. But what we do know is it quenches our thirst. It satisfies us. It fills us. It gives us life. And the blood is the blood of Messiah and the blood of the Lamb. It's a picture 
all that that animal there was a picture of what Jesus, what Yeshua would come and do later. You see, it was a celebration of that. And today it's still a celebration of that. You see, so we have this picture of the, the water, which is Yeshua. He says, I am the water. He is the one that quenches our thirst. It's like when we take, a, when we drink of him, we can't really explain its taste. There's nothing like it. But we know it satisfies. It quenches our thirst. And his blood cleanses us of our sins. But see, there's another place in the, in the New Testament where we see blood and water. And that's when Yeshua was on the cross and he was struck in his side. And as he was struck in his side, blood and water came pouring out and it fell on the altar. It fell on the ground there. In the same way, just like this feast of Sukkot, where the, the water libation ceremony, where the water and the blood is poured. You see, and the most incredible thing about this is that, you know, the, the Jewish people have, they were celebrating this feast year after year after year after year. And little did they know that that feast would be fulfilled. That would be, it would be, it, it would become reality at the event of the cross. It's all a picture of Yeshua, and we see Yeshua talking about this feast in John. He says in John seven verse thirty-seven, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, "If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink." Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. You see, it's, he says, if you believe me, I am the water. And if you believe in me. You, I will ascend into heaven and I will send a spirit, the same spirit that dwells in me. I will send to dwell in you. And when it dwells in you, I am going to the same water that I provide the world to, to, to have a drink from and be satisfied. I will put in you and out of your belly will flow rivers of living water for this world. You see, when this world sees you, they will see the spirit. They will see something incredible in you because it will be me that lives in you and I will bring the world to my through my kindness through my repentance through my love that I will manifest in you through you to this world I will bring them to them to repentance and see that's the living water that this feast is all about it celebrates that intimacy we've got we need to be so intimate so close with them like we mentioned this face-to-face celebrate we're celebrating this face-to-face encounter we're going to have with him one day when we when the new heaven and earth is here and he's here with us this face-to-face encounter read about revelation he says i saw a new heaven and a new earth and for the former heaven and the former earth had passed away and the sea is no more and I, John, saw the set-apart city, renewed Jerusalem, coming down out of the heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, See, the booth of God, the tabernacle, the Sukkot, the Sukkah of God is with men, and he shall dwell with them, 
and they shall be his people and God himself shall be with them and be their God. You see, Sukkot means tabernacle. It means a a temporary, a, a dwelling place, a covering, a protection. And this all speaks to that place of intimacy we will one day have with him. And see, along with this, this how they celebrate the festival, like I mentioned earlier, it was an agricultural feast. In other words, they were celebrating the rains to come, right? But now that we know that Yeshua is the water, you see, it is all pointing to him. It was an agricultural feast, yes, but it was the celebration of the rain to come, the water to come, Yeshua who is going to come. It's that, and today we in this feast we also celebrate Yeshua who has come, Jesus, how he has come. He has out of his belly came rivers of living water, and he came and sent his spirit, gave it to him to us, and the same happened with us. But that's not all. The water libation ceremony didn't end there. There was also this incredible celebration on the day, the most joyous celebration of the year. And in fact, we read the historical writings say the following in the Mishnah, whoever has not seen the celebration of the water libation has never experienced the feeling of true joy. Great lamps of gold were hoisted with four golden bowls at the top of each lamp. Four young priests in training would climb to the top, carrying immense oil jugs with which they would fill the bowls. Once lighted, there was not a courtyard in all of Jerusalem that did not glow with the light that emanated from the celebration in the temple courtyard. You see, there was these incredible, this incredible golden light, light standing massively large with these massively large gold, golden um, fire holders that were, that were lit by the priests. And this, this stand was actually known as the light of the world. They called it the, the light of the world. And these golden, like we, we read, these bowls were lit with immense, immense amount of oil. And what they would actually do is they would take the priestly garments, they would soak them in the oil and they would use that to burn in these lamps. You see, there's a connection. Because you see, remember on the cross, what happened is Yeshua, his garment was torn and, and divided amongst them. The same way the priestly garments are torn and it's used to light this fire. You see, and what is what is it called? The light of the world. Yeshua says, I am the light of the world. I am the one that gives light to everyone, the whole world. And it says that this golden lampstand gave light to every courtyard in Jerusalem. A picture of how Yeshua gives light to every place. And see, it's the oil that was needed. Doesn't that also sound familiar? The ten virgins. You see, when the ten virgins, they it was all about the oil. They, it was all about whether their lamps had enough oil to sustain them. And in the same way, the question is, is this light stand, this sacrifice up there, if you will, 
It has to be continually burning. It has to have enough oil. In the same way, we Yeshua is the light of the world, but then he calls us like he puts his spirit in us. He calls us to also be lights in this world. And it means for us to be lights. We need to have oil. You cannot burn your lamp if you don't have the oil. And so the oil is this simple idea of being obedient to his instructions, running after him, being on fire for him, burning continually for him, making sure our fires don't go out, making sure that our passion doesn't die down, making sure that we don't grow weary, we don't get passive, we don't we don't chill out and just take a rest. God calls us to go and run after this thing with all we have to the very day. You see, you can't go and you can't go through one day, one, two, day, three, day, four and stop there. You need to go till day seven. You need to finish the race. You need to finish the seven days of the feast until if, if you want to reach the eighth day in peace. If you want to reach that eighth day with him where you see God face to face and the new beginning, new heaven, new earth. But if you're there, it's like Jacob and Esau. If you want God, to, if, if God is going to come and give us a hug and, and we're going to cry and with him and he's going to wipe away our tears. It is going to be whether we are one of the good virgins or not, one of the pure virgins or not. If you're not one of the pure virgins, if you're not one of the good virgins, if your oil ran out. You're not going to make it to that stage on the eighth day. And so God simply calls us. He says, you need my spirit. You need to be filled by my spirit. You need to that, that loving water needs to be in you. That fire needs to be in you. Because that's how you can walk as my son. And that's who my son wants to marry. That's whom Yeshua wants to be with. He wants to be with a bride who is equally yoked to him. A bride filled with his spirit. A bride with the same character. A bride that is refined and ready. A bride that's been preparing her whole life. You see, New Jerusalem came down like a bride adorned for her husband. Prepared for her husband. And God calls us then to prepare. This is the season you see this right now, right now. God, we're not there yet. This is not it yet. We still have time. And God calls us now to, he says, it's not this. This is, a, this is right now a preparation season. It's a wedding rehearsal for the actual wedding date. And if you don't do the wedding rehearsal, if you say, I don't need to do that. It's a bother. Yeshua, Jesus came to throw that away. You're not doing, you're not attending your own wedding rehearsal. I don't know about you, but when I look at my king and I see how holy he is, I want to be prepared for that wedding. I want to make sure that I got all my Every I know the custom. I know that I've got the, the the all the dresses right. All the I know how to behave at the wedding. I know how to do everything right. You see, because it's all about that one day. Our whole life, everything that we know, it, or it rests on that one eighth day, that new beginning. And if if, if we miss that, if we get distracted by this world, that's exactly what the enemy wants, and we won't see him. In his face the way we want to. We'll never be there. And we've got one shot at this. And I'm gonna and I implore you to go and say, Father, you need to make me like you need to make me equally yoked with you. Because see, <laughs> Jacob was in sin with Esau. He wronged his brother dearly, and he and Jacob deserved the consequence of that. He deserved way more than what he got. Because when Esau came, Esau gave him a hug and forgave him in that moment. 
You see, that's what God, all God desires. It's all He desires. He say, this is not about a works thing. This is not about how big His, it's not about how big Jacob's presents were. It's not about how, you know, all the things Jacob tried to do. It was simply about Jacob's heart. Esau saw Jacob bowing down these seven times over and over. He's pouring out his heart. He's repenting. He's saying, brother, I'm sorry. That is what God granted Jacob mercy and grace. And in the same way, we say, fathers, all we need to do is, father, forgive us, make us like you, change us, give us your spirit. And if we do all these things, then we will, he will, he will, he will be like Esau and come and give us a hug and forgive us. And we will weep and he will wipe away our tears. We read about the new heavens in Revelation 21, verse 21. And he says, And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl. And the streets of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine, for the glory of God gives light and its lamp is the Lamb. Like we mentioned when we looked at that, when they celebrate the feast, they had this lampstand, the light of the world representing Yeshua, how he burns for the world. And we see even read in the new hymns, that same light where God says there will not be no need for a temple. There will not be no need for because God will be the temple. There will be no need for a sun or a moon because God will be the light. He is that. And that is what, what, what a huge part of this festival is celebrating that light of the world that he is to us. And making sure that we are part of that light, we're part of that kingdom of light, where we are, we are walking that out for all to see as well. See, brothers and sisters, this feast is incredibly important, and it's incredibly easy to celebrate. It's simply this: God says, "I would like you to keep a Sabbath on the first and on the eighth day, celebrating the the intimacy, celebrating Him tabernacling with us, like we've discussed in this video, celebrating that." That forgiveness, that grace that he gives us, like like Esau gave Jacob. All of these things are the culmination of this feast. And see, with that, he he also instructs us to make a sukkah. A sukkah, like I mentioned, is a tabernacle. It's a temporary dwelling place. You know, some people go and they they simply go and they go camping, or they you know um, uh, build a little sukkah for themselves. And it can be there's no way of doing it that's right or wrong it's just about trying your best and going and you know making making so making a little temporary dwelling place a little building a little thing in your backyard if you if you can't go out far away or but it's about changing where you are it's about instead of living in where you usually were you now move to a different place and in that place now there's a certain a certain change of your environment and it's part of this feast and then when you when you sleep there or when you fellowship there with other believers it's this incredible reminder of what you're doing you see god was it's simply we we oftentimes get so stuck on the technicalities of how to celebrate this feast but it's really just as it's more about the idea of being focused on what it's about and whichever way you want to really exactly do that the details that's up to you but then you know go and rest take all from work on the first and seventh day and rest in him fellowship of others and grow in him in that way 
We see, unfortunately, many in, in Christianity have thought that this feast is totally abolished and it's not for today and we don't need to do it anymore because for various reasons. I want to submit to you that if you're not keeping the feast now, you will have to keep it even in the millennium. See, this feast is for today, it's for tomorrow, it's through for the millennial. And until God comes one day and maybe he says we don't need to do it anymore, until that day we ought to keep it. You see, in Zechariah we read, that those who do not keep the feast will not have Messiah. In Zechariah 14 verse 16 we see, And it shall be that all who are left from the nations which came up against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year to bow themselves to the sovereign Yahweh of hosts and to celebrate the festival of Sukkot. And it shall be that if any one of the clans of the earth does not come up to Jerusalem to bow himself to the sovereign Yahweh of hosts, on them there shall be no rain. And you remember what we said the rain is? You know, we've, we've been talking about how this is an agricultural feast. and It was always celebrated with, with, with a part of it was, God, thank you for the rains that you will be bringing in the next year. And we connected that with Yeshua. We said that rain, Yeshua is the water. He is that rain that was going to come and did come. And now he is the rain that did come. And, and fills us with his water and his spur. But see, even in the, that's a part in the millennial reign in, in Zechariah 14. So in that place, we are still celebrating it. And God it says that those who do not come to bow literally before Yahweh of hosts in celebration of the Feast of Sukkot, on those nations there will be no rain. In other words, there will be no Yeshua. There will be no God's, you know, if you don't come to bow before God, you are not making him your God. You're making something else your God. You will not have Yeshua if you don't bow to God, if you don't bow to Yeshua. And so as you see, this feast will be celebrated one day and you might as well get to start rehearsing today. Because I want to submit to you that it will be really embarrassing to come there before him and have no idea what's going on. Come to that feast one day in Jerusalem where he will be on earth in the millennial reign and not have an idea what's going on. You see, God calls us, like I said, this is a wedding rehearsal. He calls us today to prepare. He calls us today to make sure our oil is ready. You see, this celebrating the Feast of Sukkot is a commandment. God commands us to be joyful. Who would want, who wouldn't want to do that? God commands us to celebrate Him, celebrate what He's done, celebrate the tabernacling of Him with us. The fact that He's always been pursuing us. He's never left us. He's always wanted intimacy with us. What isn't there is so much to celebrate and to toss it aside is to toss the bridegroom aside. It's like when your bridegroom tells you, I want you to come to our wedding rehearsal, my bride, because I want us to you to be ready for it. I want you to make sure I know you've, you've, you've came out of this pagan background. I know you've had all these things going on in your life. You, you know, you, you, you sinned and you did. But I want to forgive you. I'm sinning. I'm coming to die for you. I'm coming to reunite you with myself. That's what he did. He came in the flesh to die for his divorced bride to get her back. And he got his bride back. And now he's says, no, bride, I'm going to go away. I'm going to prepare a place for you. I'm going to make a home for you. And now I want you to prepare for me to come back and fetch you. You see, it's exactly how the Jewish wedding would go. The Hebrew wedding 
was like that, where the, the bridegroom would ask his bride tomorrow and then go away, leave to prepare a place to build a house. And when they built this house, after he's done, he will come back with a blowing of trumpets to his bride, the, the husband, literally through the streets with some friends, family. They would blow the trumpets and the bride would hear and know that the bridegroom is here. It's the Feast of Trumpets that we have on the first day of the month, which no one knows when the day or the hour is going to be because it's going to be dependent on the sighting of the moon. And I encourage you to watch my video, The Feast of Trumpets, The Thief in the Night, if you want to know more about the Feast of Trumpets. But see, then after that, you know, there's that that's after that follows the Day of Atonement and then the wedding feast. It's it's all connected. It's all with scripture, the feasts are all those four feasts aren't fulfilled. They're all to be fulfilled. And we must look to them if we want to meet our bridegroom. Because see, if you do not know what the feast is about, you know how it works. You're going to miss your wedding day. You don't know how to how the God with God's customs are like. You just know your earthly customs, the way of we do things. You're going to miss him. You're going to be like a virgin who misses her bridegroom. And so I encourage you, God calls us to get ready. As you can hear, there's much to get ready for. But it's exciting. And as long as we come before with a pure heart instead of a rebellious heart, just a pure heart, giving our hearts to Him, saying, Father, we, we give our life as a living sacrifice to whatever you need to do to make us like you have your way. That's all He desires. And in that, He will. And God bless you and keep you. Thank you for sticking through with this video. We just pray over you right now. Father, I just pray, Holy Spirit, you would come and everyone who's watching. Lord, I thank you that we are sitting at the great last day coming up right now. And I pray, Father, you would come and touch your people. Yahweh, come and fill them with your spirit. Father, come, Lord, with your living water, God, and fill us. Let uh, from our bellies come living water for this world. Let us be a part of this light of the world, this kingdom of light. Let us be a witness of light to the world around us, Father. Help us to be prepared and for you. Help us to look like you, Father. Lord, we repent. We ask that you would cleanse us and make us new, Father. We ask that you would help us to be ready above all else. And Father, help us to be equally yoked with you, Father. Father, we look forward to your return, God. And we know that one of these years we'll hear the trumpets blow. We know and we'll know that the wedding feast is coming very soon. Father, when we hear those trumpets blow, Father, help us to be ready and not distraught. Help us to be excited and not and not falling, letting our hearts sink, God. Father, I pray that you would lift our hearts and encourage us where we are. We pray this name, Yeshua, Messiah. Amen. Have an amazing feast of Sukkot, and I'll see you guys in the next video as God permits. Shalom.